On May 29, 1953, New Zealander Edmund Hillary and Sherpa Tanzig Norgay climbed to the highest peak on Earth. They were the first mountaineers to scale all 29,000 feet of Mount Everest. Truly, this was one of the greatest feats of exploration in history. To mark the monumental accomplishment, Edmund Hillary, not a very religious man, put a little cross at the top of the mountain. This was the farthest point human feet touched. That was until 16 years later, where exploration took on a whole nother level. In the summer of 1969, some of you just started singing a song, I know, Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin were the first astronauts to land on the moon. And we all know the famous words Neil Armstrong said that day as he exited the spacecraft. One small step for man, one giant step for mankind. But what many don't know was that Buzz Aldrin had his own words to memorialize the occasion. He brought with him a chalice, some wine and bread to celebrate Holy Communion on the moon. Now how you get bread and wine through a space helmet is beyond me. It's hard enough for me to figure out how to do communion on earth, yet alone on the moon. Now in one sense, what Sir Edwin Hillary and Buzz Aldrin did didn't seem all that strange. It makes sense that when you're crossing a frontier, people feel more in touch with what is sacred. And it's always good to acknowledge God in our achievements. But in another sense, to memorialize those accomplishments with the symbols of Holy Week, bread, wine, a cross, shows us just how much we want to associate God with the greatness displayed in human strength and prowess. We saw one of the worst expressions of this recently. Several weeks ago, the Russian president, during a speech, talked about how the Russian soldiers were giving up their lives for a cause and for each other, much like Jesus talked about in John 15. How horrific. But you see, whether it's for good or evil causes, it's very hard not to fuse religious conviction with hopes of grandeur and conquest. And that's what we see in our passage today. The crowds cry out, Hosanna, God saves, because they want Jesus to be a militant Messiah who will free them from Roman rule. But there is a glaring problem with all this. God shows his greatness through human weakness in Jesus. God shows his greatness through human weakness in Jesus. If we're honest, we have trouble believing in the power of God's weakness. What grabs our attention? What captures our imaginations? Isn't it the great displays of power all around us? A world leader showcases his barbaric strength, and we watch the news stories feeling like our hands are tied. A well-known celebrity slaps another celebrity on stage, and that's what makes videos go viral. That's what makes tickets, ticket sales uh, skyrocket. That's what makes ratings go up. 
We see it every day. Show great power, and people will respond to you. At home, at your job, in school, in politics, in business, the flexing of muscles is what makes a splash in our world. And it seems like the great life is truly just a race to the top. But what we will see from our passage today is that God demonstrates his eternal power and wisdom not through the greatest human achievements, but through what the world says is weak and foolish. We will see God display true greatness and Jesus' humility as he enters into the city of Jerusalem. So if you have your Bible, let's take a look at this text together. Now the story begins on the week of Passover, the feast that celebrates God's freeing his people from bondage in Egypt. Faithful Jews in the surrounding areas came in huge numbers to make sacrifices and to share in the sacred meal of Passover. Uh, Some estimate that during this feast, the the city went from a population of about 70,000 to 2.5 million, if you can imagine that. No doubt there would be increased Roman military presence to ensure law and order. But it's not the swelling of the crowds or the increased military presence that Matthew has us focus on. That all takes a back seat. Instead, it's Jesus, the Galilean peasant, sending out two of his followers in search of a donkey. Now, right before this story, in Matthew 20... Two blind men are on the road, and they call out to Jesus, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. It's been 640 years since God's people had their own king and not a puppet leader. And it's these two blind men who see that this long-expected king, the anointed son of David, is here among them. The scriptures taught, that when the Messiah would come, the lame would walk, the lepers would be cleansed, the deaf will hear, the dead will rise, and the blind will see. So Jesus turns the faith of the blind men into sight. He heals them, and their own eyes see this long-awaited King David. So chapter 21, in a sense, is a declaration of, here comes the king. The king is coming. Now, ancient texts around this time would describe the coming of the son of David as a destroyer with great strength, a smasher of oppressors. You see, all throughout Jesus' ministry, the crowd saw Jesus take down forces that the people were helpless against. He cast out demons. He cured the most stubborn ailments. He starved out hunger. He even conquered death. If anyone could fit the bill for a warrior king, it's Jesus. Just look at his great power. But Jesus doesn't fit the stereotype of a warrior king. Because the son of David doesn't enter into Jerusalem on a well-trained war horse, but on a never-saddled young colt. An animal so unruly in its youth, 
He needs his mama donkey nearby to keep him from running off. He's truly an unruly youngin. Now, each week, we see a similar scene played out in our church, in the atrium, when a parent frantically tries to prevent their toddler who just discovered their legs from crashing into cafe workers. I mean, it's almost comical, the scene that Matthew sets up for us. But perhaps that's why um, Jesus then says to his disciples, clarifies with them in verse 3, if anyone asks why do you need a donkey in the colt, say to them, the Lord needs them. And the disciples do exactly what Jesus asked. And without realizing it, just by their simple act of obedience, they carry out the ancient plan of divine wisdom. Here's what I mean. David's son, Solomon, was the next king to reign in Israel. No one matched Solomon's wisdom in all of Israel's history. That is, until Jesus came. When Jesus came on the scene, the crowds were amazed and astonished at his teaching. No one taught like he did. Matthew tells us this, wisdom far greater than Solomon was right in front of the people. And in 1 Kings chapter 1, we see that Solomon was recognized as the rightful king of Israel when he rode on King David's mule. So now in Jesus, the greater Solomon enters Jerusalem on a donkey, the first royal procession in over 600 years. Little did these disciples know they were taking part in a coronation service, easy enough to say, even more significant than King Solomon's. But not only that, notice that Matthew tells us that Jesus' mode of transportation was to fulfill prophecy. Verse 5, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey. As we heard earlier, most of these words come from the prophet Zechariah. And for the people of Israel, these words couldn't come to fulfillment any sooner. You see, because that title, Daughter of Zion, emphasizes the need for protection and defense. And no wonder, because at the time Zechariah delivers this prophecy originally, the Babylonians had their foot on God's people's neck. And it was during the time of Jesus that the Romans had their foot on God's people's neck. The Romans imposed heavy taxes on Israel. They corrupted Jewish culture. They imposed idolatrous worship on them. Ordinary people lived in great poverty. They needed God to do for them what they celebrated at Passover every single year. Freedom from oppression, the overthrow of their enemies. They needed God to establish peace in their time again. They were all in for Jesus. They throw down their cloaks. They put down palm branches as an act of submission to the king. And God will deliver them, but not according to their own wisdom and not in the strength they imagine, but through what one author calls a revolution through humility. 
Now here's what I mean. Since the beginning of Matthew's gospel, Jesus preaches an upside-down kingdom like Chris talked about earlier, where the meek will inherit the earth. When his disciples argue with each other about who will be the greatest in God's kingdom, Jesus tells him, it's the one who is first who will be last, and the one who is last will be first. When Jesus describes his own heart, he says that it is one that is gentle and lowly. When he talks about bringing justice, he doesn't do it at the expense of the weak and vulnerable. In fact, he comes to raise them up. Jesus is the coming king, but he rules by humility. No one taught or lived like Jesus did. And the Gospels note just how astonished the people were with Jesus. But there may be another reason to that. Because Jesus didn't perfectly fit the mold of what Jewish people wanted in a Messiah. He also didn't live a life that was pursuing glory and honor typical in Roman culture. And in some ways, the people's misunderstanding of Jesus is quite understandable. I mean, in the case of the Jewish people, what else could salvation mean other than the fact that the Messiah will come and overthrow the enemies? Or in the case of the Romans, why would anyone be humble when that meant lowering yourself below the dignity and respect you deserve? John Dixon, a historian from Australia, wrote a book on humility, and he um, points this out, that humility was so little regarded in Jesus' day that in a list of 147 virtues uh, found um, um, in, 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 um, in ancient times, in, a li- in that list of 147 virtues, humility doesn't even make the list. Now listen to the stark contrast of what Paul says about Jesus in Philippians 2. Jesus, who was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. And then he adds this, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. In a day that humility didn't even make the list of virtues, for Jesus, it was right at the top. It's what defined his life. You see, for the Jews, Jesus wasn't the kind of Messiah God's people expected, but he was the Messiah they most needed because he did conquer, not by crushing his enemies, but being crushed by them on the cross for the sake of their sins. Death on a Roman cross was the ultimate sign of shame. Yet three days later, God raises Jesus from the dead and he receives the highest glory of heaven itself. Neither Jew nor Gentile could have seen this is how God would work salvation in the world to bring about true greatness in the world. In the Old Testament reading that we heard from Zechariah, we heard the words that war would cease for God's people and that there would be peace among the nations. How could there be when the nations were warring 
against God's people. That's all Israel knew for hundreds of years. Well, it will be the king who is wiser than Solomon who will broker the greatest peace agreement. Because on his cross, he brings both Jews and Gentiles together into the one family of God under his lordship. So you see, Jesus both meets and exceeds Jewish and Roman expectations of greatness, and he reconciles the nations together all through the undignified weakness of the cross. Now we've seen that this victory through humility is foreshadowed in how Jesus enters Jerusalem. He enters on a donkey. But what prevents the crowds from seeing that Jesus' victory will come through weakness? It seems fairly obvious as we look at this. His ministry is entirely humble. I think it's because power and our desire for more power blinds us. I said earlier that it's the blind who recognize Jesus as the son of David, and so do the crowds in our passage, but they don't know exactly what that means. Well, why is that? Matthew tells us that they are all stirred up. They are wild in excitement. The whole city is in commotion. It's like an earthquake happened. Well, have you ever been so swept up by a crowd that you lose sight of yourself? Like when the Yankees beat the Boston Red Sox on opening day when they go into extra innings. Have you ever had that experience? It's electrifying. The experience of power can blind us. Some years ago, NPR ran a story of Matthew Sacek he was a star chef who was successful in setting up restaurants in Washington, D.C. and Chicago. He also had served in the military during the Persian Gulf War. He was hailed by his restaurant critics and by the customers, but not so by his employees. You see, he devoted his life to earning the elusive four Michelin stars. You can imagine the kind of pressure he put on himself. He medicated himself each day with Jim Beam just to stave off the anxiety. And he became an impressive boss. So much so that he used military tactics to shape up his staff. He says this, As a Christian, I became disgusted with the rentless pursuit of a four-star rating. Notice how he started that sentence. As a Christian. Right? He wasn't immune to the temptations just because he was a follower of Jesus Christ. He said, I earned a reputation for profits, customers, and fame, but was driven to tyranny with my employees. In order to get the four stars, he burned people. And one night, he did that quite literally. He held a line chef's hand over an open flame because he messed up an order. And when he came to the realization of what happened, that sobered him. You see, he was at the top of his field, and yet he stooped so low, even as a follower of Jesus. He said, one night, I went home, 
and drop down to my knees and ask for forgiveness from the God who humbled himself on the cross for me. He left the restaurant business and started an Amish deli in rural Maine, but this time he has new employees and a new attitude. For the first time in his life, he saw how the humble life of Jesus brings peace in a way that the pursuit and exercise and power never could. You see, the humble King Jesus won the war raging in Matthew's heart. And he can win the war raging in our hearts too. He can conquer those preoccupations about getting ahead or being on top, no matter the cost to your spiritual life or to those around you. Jesus wants to give us the fullness of life found by humility, to pour out ourselves for the benefit of others. That's what our families most need from us. That's what our friends need. That's what our coworkers need around us. And that is what the world needs. During the 1800s in London, an organization in one man in particular was being honored for their incredible work to help the poor throughout the city. The man was asked to give a speech about what made the organization tick, but the honored guests couldn't attend. The organization was short on funds, so he couldn't travel there. So instead, he sent a telegram, a dictated note that could be passed along. But here was another snag. Each individual letter in the telegram cost money. So to answer the question, what made his organization tick, he answered in one simple word, others. The honored guest was a Methodist preacher, William Booth, and the organization was the Salvation Army, an organization that helps people all across the world in over 130 countries. Now that's a big example of how Jesus' humility revolution has spread in a major way and continues to spread. You and I might not be called to make such an impact but we can start right where we are. Earlier this week, someone shared with me that in his program, it's common for people to operate in a silo. Instead of discussing research ideas with others that could lead to growth in the field, people would rather keep, on to keep their ideas to themselves so as not to share the credit. He said that as a follower of Jesus, he prays he can start to change he can start to change the direction of how his field is going right where he is. As we enter into Holy Week and we see King Jesus enter the city on a lowly donkey or on Thursday where Jesus will stoop down even lower in humility to watch, wash the feet of his disciples or especially on Good Friday when we see him lower himself to the point of death dying on the cross, we must remember that it is through the humblest acts that God has saved us. And because he has saved us through weakness, you and I are free to serve others just as he served us. In the name of the Father, 
and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Would you join me in prayer? Lord Jesus, we thank you that you did not triumph in strength, but through the weakness of the cross, instead of conquering your enemies, you converted them by the love of God. Lord, we need that same love right now. Our world needs that same love. Thank you for showing us the way of humility that leads to a life that is wide open to serve others in your name, to no longer to have to be preoccupied with being the best or being on top, but rather to serve you in joy in the places right where, right where you have us, knowing that your kingdom is coming, that your will is being done, and that your rule on earth will bring blessing and joy to all those who belong to you. May it be so for us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.